And we're back. Fungibility. You know, what? always interesting meeting people at these conferences, but especially the more technical folks. Sounds like you've got a, a really be interesting background, Shelvin. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And, and yeah, I've been nerding it up for a while. I do try to make that useful for folks in layman. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the, the level of obfuscation and misunderstanding is in, in this industry is pretty significant. So I think there's, there's an important place for us, but you know, still a rare gem. Sure. And so what is the elevator pitch for Octopus Networks? So the elevator pitch for Octopus Network is most easily, I think, formatted, uh, because there is not one, um, is most easily formatted as uh, we want to help make a uh, multi-chain world that doesn't have tribalism. So that's the most high, high level super layman that I can go um, at a more uh, like accurate level of what we actually do. We help people launch their own substrate blockchains, soon to also be Cosmos SDK chains, uh, with the idea that they would sort of uh, work with us temporarily, take on some uh, benefits from us, and stake some of our tokens. Gotcha. So you, you work with the Cosmos e ecosystem? Is that the uh, environment? Yes. yes. So we have a, um, a grant from Interchain. So um, you know, ICF basically uh, found out about the research that we were doing and said, hey, uh, we'd like you to make this more purposeful. You know, please complete this engagement. Um, we're, we're hoping to be teaching workshops with the solution that we've developed, which is called ICS 10 out mm -hmm. of the you know, available IBC numbers. Um, and that has to be effectively finalized by ICS 11. So we do um, already have this work completed, but in order for it to be secure with finalizing blocks on Substrate, uh, we need Composable Finance to finish their work on the subject as well. So in the, the Cosmos space, yes, we're trying to build these substrate chains that are you know, compatible with, with Cosmos, with IBC, mm -hmm. but these are substrate chains. That's the same format that comes from Polkadot ecosystem. So we're not telling people to launch with us instead of Polkadot. We're telling people, if you launch with us first, you can save a bunch of money and then move on to Polkadot or do whatever you want when you're ready. Gotcha. So there, there's a lot of you know discussions around sort of you know the Cosmos e ecosystem and all the various projects. There there there, te there tends to be a sort of security sort of uh, you know theme across a lot of these projects. Yep. You know what? So what what's driving a lot of the uh, access or, or you know demand in in that particular ecosystem? So I think it is um, not to to make a platitude, but it is kind of the diversity of value propositions for for each chain. Um, you have to care enough to be willing to effectively change your RPC. You know, it's it's not quite the same on Kepler as it is on MetaMask. But if you're willing to change from one chain to another, clearly you want to go to that other chain. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is a little bit of, uh, I guess you could say, lessened UX that acts as this membrane that people are willing to pass through to say, hey, I want NFTs, um, I want um, Ethereum applications, I want different things that I can mix into one wallet and then have a lot of flexibility to take over to different platforms. So where on Ethereum, I might want to go back and forth between one inch and Uniswap. On Juno, that's not usually the same thing that people will do. Usually they stay kind of faithful to a single DEX. Mm -hmm. But being able to move between something like Juno and another chain, you know, even if it's just osmosis, that's still, a, a, I think, a, a novel experience for most people. Not because they feel cool that they're mm -hmm. bridging necessarily, but because they know that their one wallet has identities in multiple places. And taking tokens from one place to another has different purposes. So the the Cosmos sort of like tip of the hat that I give is by making all these little smaller communities, they actually have a lot more community leaders that are effective and battle tested. 
because instead of being in this DAP environment where you just pay for gas and everything's fine, you have to keep validators happy. Mm -hmm. So that different dynamic for for smaller groups, I think it's a lot of what's made Cosmos strong. Okay, you know, as a developer, you know, often I get sort of stuck in in the um, you know the comfort zone of like I've deployed my Solidity contracts and and I you know I. I don't like the idea of moving it or to another like programming language like Rust. Like like I've got already got all this code. Like what's the what's that migration path look like? So it is dicey. Um, I'll tell you at Octopus if you're bringing us substrate code, if you're bringing you know a stack of ten contracts that is effectively your business, you can containerize that in the Frontier model for substrate. We have our own template for that called Barnacle EVM. It's just forked from Frontier. Mm -hmm. But um, that's that's the two pronged answer that I give. Is number one, you can keep some of your logic if you don't want to fully convert. Uh, number two, it's worth converting because you basically need the higher efficiency at scale. You know, eventually it just doesn't make sense to be using JS or Solidity. It makes sense to be using Rust because it does take a lot less compute cycles to get things done. Uh, you can run it on different hardware, etc. But the, um, uh, the second step to that is that even if you do containerize your solidity with us, you still are responsible for a macro runtime in Rust. That's enough to connect the front of the back end and configure your uh, sort of economic footing. Mm -hmm. So there is still some knowledge required, but what that conversion looks like right now, it's a different journey for everyone. I do give out a package to make that easier, but most of the time it is uh, getting a little bit more comfortable with computer science outside of uh, sort of JVM. Yeah, you know, so that that smaller scope of being able to work inside uh, JavaScript in just a, a smaller environment, um, it is neat, it is easy, but it is relatively insensitive to the bare metal. It's relatively, um, you know, sort of not understanding of what the rest of the computer has to deal with as you're running this code. So um, the change for for upscaling into Rust is really a an upping in computer science, and it's not for everybody, but it does require you to kind of. Uh, look up from the desk that is the JS you're working on and say, okay, here's the context. There's this mm -hmm. inefficient resource here. I can do this better over here. And, you know, so it sounds like most of that is a, there are technical considerations rather than liquidity or, or community. It's true. The, the only other one that's really reasonable is labor. So Rust does have a sort of upskill cost, right? Not everybody upskills successfully and mm -hmm. it's not the easiest language to learn. So the complexity is a, a real thing to be honest about, and I'm kind of tired of hearing influencers mention it, but I have to mention it mm -hmm. because it is significantly harder to hire um, someone for Rust than it is to get a Solidity dev or get someone who's going to run your React front end. You know, uh, of all the skills that I've seen, um, I don't want to see way down a project, but demand for rare engineers, that has hurt uh, giant corporations like COBOL is still around because this is such a, a massive problem in different, man in different uh, arenas. So I think that that's an honest uh, sort of challenge to, to know going into it. But at the same time, at Octopus, we help people with that stuff. So if you are bringing us your Solidity logic and you haven't learned a thing about Rust, we'll help you with that outside macro. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll need to do some learning on your own. You are responsible for your own front back end, of course. But um, we, we literally don't run that for people. And but, yeah. And it has, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the 721 and 1155 specs for NFTs in the EVM world. Um, you know, what, what does an NFT look like? in you know the the cosmos world sure i don't remember what the standard is for for nft and cosmos i owe a tip of the hat to to near because that's the ecosystem we're, we're okay. built on and closest to yeah um but that's uh, nep 171 and 191 so that's just programmatically saying hey this is the normal way that nfts should be done that includes royalties and a bunch of other things um i think that 
the way that Near does NFTs is more what we're orbiting to yep. say that that's what we have to like stay relevant with because that's our most adjacent bridging partner. At the same time, um, we took in RMRK's uh, sort of model for minimizing metadata. So um, if you want to always have the same amount of lines for an NFT, you know that you basically need a name, uh, at least one link for IPFS data yep. or some other you know uh, storage mechanism and probably some metadata, summarizing that metadata into one other place. It's not a roll-up, but you're just storing all the traits that you would need in another place. So having the traits listed as a reference, yeah, of course, it introduces all kinds of you know security questions who can change that information and so on. But that is one of the manners that we're looking at minimization because if you have three-line NFTs where uh, sort of the main trait is a reference to a list of traits somewhere else, um, that that does transport across these ecosystems more easily. Well, there's also the the ABM considerations in in the sort of you know for protocols that use the actual NFTs. So, for example, we just launched a uh, protocol called CardFi, which essentially allows you to deposit to tokens, and whoever owns the current NFT has the rights supplied to it, so I can redeem the value associated with that. Now, the reason I mention that is the, one of the key sort of characteristics of that particular protocol is the fact that we use the owner of function found within the context of a 721 or 1155 spec, right? So oftentimes the, the real value beyond IPFS metadata and, and you know, an image or video is, is the ability to sort of, you know, programmatically interact with the underlying smart contract. So my question, and this might not be something you can answer, I'm just curious, is, you know, what what is the sort of equivalent in in that world for things like an like an ABA like an ABI? Uh, the you know you mean the interface between Tendermint and yeah like so the application block interface I think is what they I call forget it. what the acronym yeah so, something yeah, like yeah. that yeah it's it's basically the blockchain version of an API you know yeah I I I learned it and forgot it no. on the Cosmos side I apologize no that's worried no worries um, yeah it's 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 something that we were testing for the the NFTs was to sort of like preference the polka dot side first because these are natively substrate chains yeah but that is our next stop is to make sure compatibility really makes sense to the Cosmos side. Um, I think three lines should be easy enough to work with, but also that third line actually has to be enough characters to make sense, right? So you have to have enough space in the field. Okay. So. No, it's in in interesting. I've been looking to explore that ecosystem a little bit more. I, again, I'm 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 too comfortable in, in the sort of you know EVM world, and it's it's almost like and, you know the near guys always show up like hey you should check out our thing, and I'm like yeah I should, and and, and you know they're, they're always willing to. Pony up some some tokens to make it I happen, too, yeah. but, but it's it's just like I'm just comfortable, right? And and you know one one of the things in regards to programming, just throwing it out there, is it's never been easier to learn new programming language thanks to things like you know OpenAI Codex. Yep. You know, so I found if you guys are familiar with with OpenAI Codex, there's an API that was put out by um, the Open. I guess open AI crew that basically allows you to sort of do auto generated code. And if you're learning a new programming language, often just seeing examples like, you know, stack overflow kind of approach, yep. this, it's like that on steroids, right? You can go there, you basically ask it a question. How do I create a function, you know, to do this in Rust? And it'll pop out this, you know, r r ridiculously complicated code, but it'll actually line by line explain how the functions work. So if you're looking to learn a new, a new programming language quickly, not only does it create you a code, it explains how and why the code works. So it's like, for me, the, the uh, OpenAI Codex has given me like coding superpowers. I was aware of tools like this in VS. I was aware of tools like this for JS. 
I didn't know that anybody had deployed this for Rust or trained anything on Rust for that. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely go play it, with that. It's pretty cool. So one of the things that I, I was playing around with the other day is it actually does you know translation of code. So you could actually take your Solidity code, pop it in into there, or actually it's, it works best with Python code. Mm -hmm. You you find a Python code on GitHub, or you can literally ask the OpenAI to find it for you or create it, and then and then you tell it to translate it to Rust or. C-sharp or whatever programming language you want, and it'll actually translate it, and it's like, and it works. It's like, what? It's And that used to require, you know, a whole team of people to go yeah. figure it out. Now it's literally one question in an input box. That might make my head explode if I click compile and I was just like, yep, we're good. It, 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 it seriously works. So one, one example is I, I created a uh, Monte Carlo simulator just for the hell of it on in as a Solidity contract. I'm like, there's no way this is going to work. So so I deployed it and it freaking worked. And it, and the whole thing took five minutes and cost roughly two cents to create. It was it was mind blowing. I definitely need to tinker with that. I I'm, I've not uh, jumped into some of the the heavier duty no coding tools. But also, I kind of uh, owe it to builders to be doing that right now. I'm on this whole campaign to be helping no-code founders and all this stuff. Yeah. I I need to tinker with that. That sounds fun. Well, yeah. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about the current sort of environment for code and, and this no-code, low-code approach is suddenly there's this sort of opportunity for sort of AI augmented development, right? And yep. now you've got these several sort of parts of the equation that are really opening up interesting opportunities. One, you've got graphical components that this year have really exploded with things like sta stable diffusion and other sort of visual AI creation tools. Artists are dead. Or, or at least, you know, anyone that, <laughs> yeah, are, they were starving before. Now, now, right, right. now, now they're they're one below level below starving. Oh, now, and and but but what is, what's even crazier is the the coder is is next on the. But on the flip side of that, it also sort of democratizes the the access to to and the ability to create things that were never easily created before, right? So now essentially you say no code, low code, and some, you know, open AI, and you you can create the next big thing with literally no experience in any of it. And five bucks. Yeah. Yeah, and five bucks. <laughs> so it's I think we're gonna see like a an explosion of new interesting things over the next few years because I think there there's gonna be this group of folks who who Always had great ideas, but but they they a lot of the folks that don't program always put the limitations of I'm not a programmer, I'm a designer, therefore I can't program, right? Which now it was all it was always a crutch, but now it's uh, it's a different it's it's it opens up a whole new you know opportunity. I watched the uh, cybersecurity and music technology industries go through that trend like in a really significant uh, kind of parabola, and. Um, yeah, like I, I think that tech is sort of uh, going to get worn down in that sense that it's not that there's a UX problem, it's that there's a demand problem. There's not enough cybersecurity engineers, there's not enough cryptocurrency projects that make sense in a lot of ways. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah, I need to join you tinkering. Like that sounds fun. Yeah, well, I I, I love to build stuff, you know, it's, and and talk. That's why I do the podcast. Um, I know we're running, running a little long here, so where can our listeners learn more about you and your project? Sure. So if you search Octopus Network on Twitter, you'll see lots of accounts. OCT underscore network is the main account. I help run that. If you want to ask any nerdy questions about Octopus, I'll be running to answer them. If you want to ask any questions about Octopus, uh, we'll, we'll be there pretty quickly to answer you. Um, you can find me on just about any other platform, Sheldon Deer. I'm, uh, apparently now I'm a brand. 
So I'm, I'm trying to get out there and, you know, help folks uh, understand some of these complicated technical concepts. Well, I, I consider myself influenced. All right. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting project you're doing. I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring it more. Thanks so much. All right. Until next time, I'm, I'm Ruve and this is Fungibility.